Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that we are back. And thank you, Father, for the chance to study, as always, here on a regular basis on Wednesday nights. But Father, we are, uh, we are devoted to your word, Father, because we have come to understand in our own experience how you have given us all we need there. That, that when Jesus said we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, Father, we see it in our lives as we as we recognize the power of your word to, to change hearts and to mold our thinking into conformity with yours and for the way in which, Father, it, ins- it uh, calls us to live a life that is different than the world. And yet, Father, how easily we forget that unless we devote ourselves to pursuit of your word, it will not benefit us in the way that it could. So thank you, Father, that we are here and that we have found the opportunity to study. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, two weeks ago, we were in the end of chapter 19. So briefly, to remind you all of what we heard when we finished at the end of that chapter, Paul was in the last days and weeks of his three years in Ephesus. And after he'd already decided he was going to move on, but having not yet gone, he is the main instigator for a riot, or what almost became a riot, because... The idol makers in the city were blaming Paul for their reduced income because their idols weren't selling as well as they used to. So it eventually came to a conclusion, but it probably gave Paul the impetus, the motivation to go ahead with his plans to depart. And it was the sign maybe that he needed to know it was time to move on. After all, he'd been here for three years. It it may have been hard for him to ever think that it was really time to move on. As we studied last time, he has set his mind on reaching Rome. So for Luke, the rest of this story is about how Paul gets there. But Paul said before he goes to Rome, he knew he had to visit Macedonia again and ultimately into Greece and to Corinth. Finally, from there, he intended to go to Jerusalem to be there in time for the Passover. Now, chapter 20, where we start tonight, it tells the final leg of the story of Paul's third journey. So this this chapter takes us virtually to the end of his third journey. And, of course, not long after that, we'll see his fourth and final journey begin. So let's start now chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. When he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months. When a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus, Secundus of Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days. And there we stayed seven days. Stop there for a second. There's an awful lot there. And I think for the most part, I'm going to go over it briefly. There are some interesting points to be made, though. If you have this, your third missionary journey map. And again, if you don't, I'll repeat it's online. You can download it with the, uh, the lesson in which we handed it out somewhere back about three or four chapters. This will help you tonight a lot because you notice Luke just ran through a whole bunch of of cities in a very short period of time. So we're leaving Ephesus. In verses 1 and 2, which I started with tonight, you have the shortest account by Luke of any leg of any of Paul's missionary journeys. 
In two verses, he summarizes weeks of travel. Fortunately, we have Paul's own writings in specifically 2 Corinthians and Romans, which were written in about this period of time, uh, which fill in some gaps here, fill in some of the pieces. And based on what, what you can glean out of those books and what Luke says here, I can give you a little bit more of what has happened in those first two verses. First, follow from your map. You see Ephesus. He goes up by sea to Macedonia. He spends some time there. But while he's there, he's troubled over some of the things he's hearing about what's going on in the church in Corinth. He had earlier, before he left Ephesus, he had written them a fairly stern letter, which we now know as 1 Corinthians. And he had sent it to Corinth with Titus. And now that he's sitting up in Macedonia, Paul is concerned for how that church may have received that rebuke. He hadn't heard anything since he sent the letter with with Titus. And Paul's probably starting to wonder, uh, gee, I wonder if I was too harsh on him. I wonder if they rebelled against my authority. Uh, I wonder what's happened. So now he begins to move out of Macedonia and then from Macedonia down, if you notice along the coast there, closer and closer to Corinth. On the way westward, Paul runs into Titus, who's returning from Corinth. And when the two run into each other, Titus gives a positive report concerning Corinth, which encourages Paul tremendously. So in the fall of A.D. 56, Paul writes 2 Corinthians while he's still in Macedonia. He talks about things like, if I made you sorry, well, it was for good reasons, you know, things like that. Paul is echoing what he's heard from Titus. Finally, Paul reaches Greece, which is on your map there, Acacia and basically Corinth. And after three months, and this is consistent with what we've already seen now Luke talk about, after three months in Corinth, which Luke here calls Greece, Paul has planned now to leave Corinth and go to Jerusalem by by ship. There were three Jewish feasts in each calendar year that were supposed to be attended in person in the city of Jerusalem. And Passover was one of them. And therefore, it had become common in, in this time for ships to be chartered in various foreign ports around the known world, waiting for the Jews who wanted to get to Jerusalem for these feasts to come to the port and look for one of these ships. So think of it like a cruise ship that knew Jews would want to go to Passover, Jews would want to go to uh, one of these other feasts. And as a result, they were all set up and ready. And you'd have these ships with nothing but Jews on them all going directly to Jerusalem at certain times of the year. Normally, a ship wouldn't make a direct route to Jerusalem. They'd be stopping at ports along the way for trade, commerce, and so on. So Paul is probably going to, intending to grab one of these ships, leaving Corinth, timed perfectly so that it lands in Jerusalem just before the Passover. But Paul evidently, in the course of getting ready for this trip, gets word that the Jews that were conspiring against him in Corinth were anticipating him making this trip, and they had probably arranged for someone on the ship to throw him overboard some night along the trip. And, of course, if they had succeeded in that, no one would have known what had happened. We'd never hear from Paul again. He would have just disappeared. And that would have been the easiest thing in the world to do on a ship with nothing but Jews on it. So Paul smartly decides, I'm not going to be able to take that route after all. And as a result, he gives up all hope of reaching Jerusalem in time for Passover, at least that year. As he's getting ready to leave Greece, going north now, back into Macedonia, he has this delegation with him now as he walks out of the city. The men here that are listed are representatives, each of some particular Gentile church or some particular Gentile region. So they become representatives of their respective churches. 
The men that are listed here by Luke in the order that you see here, Berea, Pyrus, Thessalonica, of course, and so on, Derby. These are all the various Gentile churches in Macedonia, Galatia, and Asia that Paul has founded or been instrumental in starting. So these men now have all collectively come back into Corinth with, with Paul, and they're getting ready now to move out from here with Paul back to Jerusalem. The point of this is they're bearing gifts. They're bearing financial gifts for the Jerusalem church, each representing their respective area, their respective church area, so that they can come back to Jerusalem and deliver what their particular church has donated. Paul likely is representing Corinth himself. That's why there's no additional man listed from that area. Paul would have been the logical man to represent Corinth. And Luke may have been the one representing Philippi because Luke actually joins this entourage as it reaches Philippi on the trip back. You notice the reemergence of the term we, which we haven't seen for a while because Paul dropped Luke in Philippi in the second journey. And since the time of that second missionary journey, Paul and Luke have been separated. Now, as Paul comes back up through with this delegation, Luke rejoins them. Now, the Gentile churches throughout this region, as Paul founded them, have been taught from the beginning that uh, they, being wealthy relative to the church in Jerusalem, had an obligation to share that wealth with other believers. And it was, I think, particularly for Paul, it was important that the Jewish church see the generosity of the Gentile church in effect, to bind them together, to help these two different groups recognize that they are now one in Christ. Paul teaches this particularly in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. If you haven't studied that letter, I'd encourage you to just go back and read those two chapters. If nothing else, it's really fascinating all that Paul has to say about giving and about the necessity to be a giver in the context of the church without stipulating a tithe or without stipulating an amount, which is not found in the New Testament. Uh, in this case, the church in Corinth is the focus of that letter, 2 Corinthians. They're a church of plenty, and Paul notes to them that much poorer churches in Macedonia had been giving liberally to the needs of the Jerusalem church. And if you read the letter in those two chapters I mentioned, it's really fascinating. Paul, appropriately, turns to them and says, if poor churches up the road are giving all this money that they can't really afford to give, but are doing so, you, with all the money you have, you'll be shamed if you don't at least try to match what they're doing. It seems almost like a sales job, but Paul, I think, is making a very biblically appropriate point here, which is you give as you have means to give. You give as you have ability to give. And it goes without saying that when our ability is, is increased by virtue of how God blesses us, there comes with that a responsibility to think differently about your giving. And without putting a number to it, just the principle is enough. But Paul makes that principle clear in his letter to this church. And this delegation is really a testimony to the fact that his teaching to the Gentile church has made a difference so much so that they're willing to give up of their wealth for the needs of a very poor Jewish church waiting in Jerusalem. For, for Paul, I think this validated his ministry to some extent. Now, by the time this delegation meets up with Luke in Philippi, the Passover has, has come and they now celebrate the Passover in Philippi. But notice what it does to the delegation. The Gentile members of the delegation continue on while Paul and Luke and presumably a few others, if they're Jewish, a few other Jewish members of this delegation remain behind, we're told, to celebrate the Passover. And that's because the nature of the Passover required that they stay somewhere for at least eight days. The Passover leading into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's an eight-day period of time. The Gentiles, on the other hand, who are not celebrating this, move on and secure a ship 
in Troas for the journey on the rest of the way to Jerusalem. After the feast is over, Paul and the rest then continue on to Troas. Verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day. And he prolonged his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. And there was a young man named Eutychus sitting in the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. When Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. And when he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. They took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. From here on, through the end of Luke's narrative, all the way to the end of the book, the storyline will read differently than we've seen up to this point. And this story is a good example of what I'm talking about. It's going to start reading a lot more like a travel journal than a narrative story about Paul and his life or Peter and his life. And I think that's in keeping now with Luke's point of view because Luke now has become a traveling companion of Paul for the rest of the story. Paul and Luke never separate again as far as the story goes. And so you imagine it now from Luke's point of view, the one following and noting and recording what happens and in a travel context, constantly on the move now for the rest of the book. So that means he's going to discuss ports of call and what happens as they went in or out of a city or as they got on a ship or got off a ship. He's going to talk about nights and places they stay. He's going to talk about these, these little travel vignettes, these moments along the way that stick in his mind. And so it becomes a little more disconnected, a little bit more staccato, where you have a story and then some movement and then a story and then some movement again, almost like the gospel accounts in some respects. And in fact, because Luke wrote one of the gospels, you'll see a lot of similarities between the two stories at this point. So here's your first vignette. You have a group of Gentile Christians are gathered in Philippi for the breaking of bread on the first day of the week. The reference here to breaking of bread is a mention of that Last Supper remembrance, which we call communion today. So that tells us right away we're looking at a, a worship service moment. Notice the meeting time on this occasion is the first day of the week. Now, the first day of the week is the same then as it is now. It's Sunday. Luke here doesn't say whether this was the weekly practice or rather if this is just a special occasion because Paul was leaving the next day. It's not clear. This may not be the normal day. This may just be the day that they did it this time. But if we assume for a moment it is the normal day, this is a change from typical Jewish practice. As Gentile believers, they would have had no previous experience with Sabbaths or high days each week. So they certainly would have cared nothing for the Jewish tradition. And the Jewish tradition was that the worship day was the last day of the week. And the last day of the week was Saturday, but their days began at at sundown, so technically it was Friday night to Saturday night. But the Gentile Christians are seen worshiping on the first day of the week. And as I said, maybe it's an exception, maybe it's their normal practice. But either way, it reflects the fact that they didn't observe the Jewish day of the Sabbath when it came to worship. They would set it on a different day of the week, and in particular here, to Sunday. So therefore, there is no indication that Gentile believers have ever, from the earliest days of the church, observed a Jewish Sabbath day or even a Gentile Sabbath day, for there is no such thing. The term Sabbath is uniquely Jewish, and it refers only to a certain day, according to Scripture. That is, the last day of the week, which is Saturday. Gentiles have appropriated the term Sabbath 
and then assigned it to another day of the week, which we have traditionally chosen to observe our worship on, which is the first day of the week, the day Jesus was resurrected. So they, they took that moment, the moment of resurrection, and used it as their convenient reason for selecting Sunday as a day of worship. There's nothing wrong with that, of course, but that doesn't make it Sabbath. Sabbath is a Jewish term appointed by God under the law, and that day has not changed. So we're not observing Sabbath on Sundays. We're just going to worship. In other words, we're not required to observe Sabbath. That's not a Gentile requirement. And therefore, this is a confirmation that even at the earliest days of the church, Gentiles made no effort to conform to Jewish worship practices, not in style, not in the day of the week, not in any respect. There's no uh, obligation for us to do it today. In fact, just one quick reference out of Scripture to, to reinforce this. Colossians 2.16 says, Let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what, to, what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. None of those things in that list, including the Sabbath day, mean anything other than as shadows of Christ. They have meaning only as shadows, pictures, that in some way they each represent Christ. And knowing how and why they represent Christ is their whole point. Once we've made that connection in our head and we understand how a certain festival or a certain Jewish observance, to include the Sabbath itself, how those things related to a picture of their Messiah, we've got the point. There's no reason to go any further with it. Paul says once you have the substance, meaning you know Christ, the shadows have no longer any value to you. You've surpassed them by going to the real thing. Until you know the real thing, the shadows are there working to illustrate and teach, and as Paul says in Galatians, as a tutor to drive you to Christ. Let's go to this incident here. So on the first day of the week, so here you have a worship service that takes place in the evening. So you met at night because everybody was at work during the day. It was probably also cooler. And the timing of this meeting leads to this strange incident. Because apparently Paul was capable of preaching far longer than even I can, which is something I know must be hard to believe. But fortunately, I've never killed anyone in my preaching yet. So Luke sets the scene here. He starts by saying there are many lamps lit in this upper story, this third story. That's not only because they needed the light, of course. That's not the main reason he mentions it. What he mentions it for is lamps were oil burning uh, in that day, of course. And as those lamps, many of them now, we're told, are burning oil in this upper room, all of that burning smoke coming off the oil is starting to probably stifle the room quite a bit. And that's going to lead them to open windows if they hadn't already. So you have a stifling setting at night, Paul preaching for hours. Uh, that's going to put anyone to sleep. And now you have a little boy sitting in this, uh, and it's a young boy. The, the word in Greek indicates a teenager, sort of, of, of that age. He's uh, sitting in the windowsill uh, as a seat just to find somewhere to sit in this upper room. Now, Paul, we're told here, prolongs, I love the word, he prolongs his preaching until midnight. The word in Greek literally means to extend or to stretch. It implies that maybe Paul was striving to go to the point of midnight for some particular reason. Perhaps this was uh, not his intention so much. Maybe it was just more Luke's perception of it. From the point of view of the audience, it felt like Paul was just stretching this thing out a little too long. And it could have also been Paul's practice to do this. We don't know how long he normally preached. This is one of the few times any mention of it is made. Having read his letters, I can't imagine myself under these circumstances growing impatient to listen to him preach. I mean, what a privilege really to hear him if you could have had the chance. Second only to probably listening to Jesus himself would have been able to sit and listen to what would Paul preach about? What would he say? Uh, in fact, some preachers I've read look at this scene and say, 
in, in all sincerity that they view Paul's practice here as scriptural authority for them to deliver very, very long messages. Well, I agree uh, that we could all stand to have a little bit more in-depth and demanding Bible preaching from time to time and probably better than we're likely to get on an average Sunday. Nevertheless, I have to go back to what we've said here on times past. The book of Acts is, a, is not a prescriptive book of theology. And by that standard, then, uh, I can't conclude or agree that a long-winded preaching out of Paul validates long-winded preaching in general. I mean, if, if Acts were seen to be prescriptive in that regard, then we would also have to conclude it's scripturally acceptable for our preaching to result in sleeping congregations. I think the only fair conclusion here is that the long preaching has dangers, as witnessed in the fate of this boy, uh, Eutychus. The boy's name is kind of an irony here of sorts, because it means fortunate. Now, I guess ultimately the, the boy finds a fortunate or a favorable outcome, but not before he experiences tragedy. He's tired here from both the late hour, the, the stifling air, lulled into sleep by Paul's voice. He just falls asleep and tumbles backward. I mean, we can see it happening, right? And he falls three stories. It kills him. Now, Luke is a doctor, so when Luke here says the boy has fallen to his death, that's going to be authoritative as far as we're concerned. He would have been an excellent source to make that a judgment. And now looking at the moment, looking at the scene, naturally there's chaos. It doesn't go into description here, but the, the, the assumption there is natural, right? Women crying, shrieking, men rushing down the stairs to see what's happened to the boy and so on. Paul, we hear, eventually goes down himself to look at the boy and, and the boy's down the ground and, and Paul falls on the boy. Now the word for fall or fell here in the Greek is a word for embrace or press upon and it reminds us, I'm sure many of you are already thinking about this, Elijah and Elisha both performed similar kinds of miracles in resurrecting dead people, laying their bodies on the other people. Now, in the cases of both Elijah and Elisha, we're told in those stories that the body of these people were dead for a while. So they're cold. And they were warming the body up. Now, we know that the miracle of the raising of somebody from the dead doesn't require that their body be warm first. We're talking about a supernatural event in any case. But here it's much faster. Paul just goes down, lays on the boy, and then comes up and says, this boy has his life in him again. And, and you have to hear it that way. Some have misunderstood this to say that he was never really dead. That's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying, oh, I checked, the life's still in him, don't worry, he's still alive. It's Paul getting up to announce that. The life is returned to him, in other words, is what Paul is doing. Now, how did Paul raise this boy from the dead? Well, obviously, he didn't do it in his own power. We've already said that. It's, it's God here performing the miracle. But did Paul know that God would accomplish this miracle in this moment? Did he, did he already have that understanding, and that's why he went down there? Or, or was it that Paul could perform this kind of miracle at will, in keeping with his apostolic authority? We won't know for sure. But I'm inclined to believe Paul had this ability as part of his apostolic authority, and he would feel a leading to use it, and did so. I think it's consistent with spiritual giftings in general. In other words, I don't get some special message from God that says, here, Steve, say this, and then I can be assured that as I deliver something, it came straight from God. No, it doesn't work that way. And I don't think Paul sat there and said, is this one of those moments I can save somebody? Okay, thank you. I'll go down and do it. I think Paul felt it. He, he, he recognized an opportunity and felt the call to do it instinctively, and that's how God's Spirit will work in all of us within our respective giftings. And yet it's clearly supernatural. God receives the glory. Perhaps Paul felt some responsibility for causing it and uh, felt moved by that, or simply mercy. Um, I also think that he could have seen this as an opportunity. This moment gives Paul an opportunity, the day before he's leaving Asia, 
And you'll see here later tonight, this is his last trip into Asia. So Paul knows he's leaving for good. And he may see an opportunity in this moment to stir up the faith of this congregation and the church in Asia uh, through a raising of the dead. I mean, that's a fairly dramatic thing. There's no getting around it. It could play to his benefit in that regard. You get a hint of this. You get a little hint of how effective this was for that purpose in, in stirring up the faith of this group and stimulating them in that sense. Look at what Luke says next and what I've read. He says, after the revival, after the boys' revival, Paul goes back up and starts the service again. Then he preaches for another six hours or so. Presumably, everybody gave Paul their full attention following the display of God's power in the resurrection of that boy. They're falling asleep after the first half of it, but he can do it again and probably keep their attention. That, to me, might say something about what this event did in just stirring these people back to, to reality about, what, about how special this faith was that they've been given and the apostles who led them. When it says there that they were greatly comforted by the boys' revival, I think the intent here is, is beyond just the obvious that the boys survived. I think they may be, Luke may here may, may be indicating that they were comforted in just seeing Paul perform such a miracle and then with the strengthening of their faith that resulted from it, it was a comfort to the church. There was something bigger going on than just being comforted by the boy. The reason I say that is he includes this at the end, not at the earlier moment when the boys revived. And I think that may indicate there's a bigger, bigger point. So from that vignette, we move forward now back to the travels. Verse 13. But we, going ahead to the ship, set sail for Asos, intending from there to take Paul on board. For so he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene, or Mytilene. Sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Chios. And the next day, we crossed over to Samos. And the day following, we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Here we go again with the travel journal. So let me look at your map if you have it. Luke quickly covers Paul's journeys from Trios to Mytilene, which is near Ephesus. Paul, as you hear, had adjusted his goal now from Passover to Pentecost. He's always trying. He just keeps moving down the calendar as time allows. Now, that means there's only been a few weeks that have passed since Paul left Philippi and is now headed through Asia again. He travels, we're told here, by land while letting everyone else take the ship. Now, why does he do that? Well, look at your map. It's actually faster to go by land than by ship because the ship has to go all around these inlets and as they follow the coast. And Paul can take a much shorter route by foot and actually beat the ship which then gave Paul a chance to spend more time with his companions in Trios before he takes off and still make it to the port the same time the ship does. So Paul buys himself an extra couple of days by taking the land route. Once he catches up then, Luke says they join together on the ship, they sail down the coast. He decides he doesn't have time to stop in Ephesus if he's still going to make Pentecost. So they continue on to Miletus. Now you'll notice as you look at your map, Miletus sits directly south of Ephesus. So he's not far from the city of Ephesus, but he's just a little further down the coast. That must have been a place they had to stop anyway. The ship had to pick a port. And so they they picked the port of Miletus. Verse 17 says, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. So now the ship is docked and Paul sends word up the road to Ephesus, which is about 20 miles up north of Miletus, that the church elders of Ephesus should travel down to him while they're weighed over in this port and he can at least meet with the elders briefly before he gets back on the ship and leaves. And that way he could deliver a message to the church without taking up too much time. 
What we'll see next is an extended section. I'll read at one length here. This is Paul's message delivered in person to the elders, and it closely mirrors his writing style. This is actually an important section of Scripture because it represents the only example we have in Scripture of Paul personally delivering an exhortation that mirrors his style of writing, which is a great uh, comfort for us in validating the letters that were written by Paul, that we know they're Paul's, because here you have someone who witnessed him speaking, reporting this is what he said, and, the, and it's very Pauline. It reads just like a mini Pauline epistle. Verse 18. When they come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I might finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of the God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Paul sets the tone of his speech in the first four verses. He says, that from their own experiences, they should know how Paul is a man of courage when it comes to preaching God's word. He served the Lord, he says, with humility and tears and trials. And what he's saying is, he's emphasizing that he is a man who operated in sincerity, not thinking too highly of himself, not profiting personally from his ministry. Rather, he experienced heartache and trials and persecution. And yet, Paul says, nevertheless, I didn't shrink back from my duty to preach. He's connecting those two. He says he never held back anything that would have been profitable for their sake. He didn't cease being seen in public, going from house to house, preaching, ministering to people, even though there was a threat to him in doing so. And then he turns the tables and he looks into the future for these guys and he alludes to more trouble. He says, I'm heading to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit has bound me with this mission but he's also given me the knowledge that I'm going to face trouble everywhere I go. And that trouble is growing stronger and stronger. Paul's sort of alluding to this coming trial. And he himself apparently didn't know what was going to involve just yet. But you have to believe he's been given enough revelation by, by Christ over the years that he understands generally what's going to happen to him. And that's got to be a burden for him to carry. And yet he mar- marches on. He doesn't, he doesn't shrink back from any of the responsibilities that came to him as an apostle. He's setting the stage here in all of this for an exhortation to the leaders for what they themselves should be doing as leaders in the church of Ephesus. And the thing he's laying at their feet is when they contend with persecution, when they contend with the enemies of the gospel, they have only one response to that. Preach the truth. Preach the word. Do it boldly. Do it without fear. Do it without compromise. Go straight at the mission. Don't let those external forces dissuade you from doing what you've been given to do. Notice in verse 24, this is the, the turning point, this is the focus point of his, of his exhortation. Verse 24, he gives a cause and effect relationship to explain his ministry. Let's look at the effect first, the second half of the verse. It's after the word so. 
He said he was able to finish his course and the ministry that he was given. That's the effect here. He was able to do what God called him to do, to preach the gospel in all its fullness. The full counsel of God's word. Remember, preaching the gospel, I think we use that term too narrowly. Biblically, it's a broad term. Preaching the gospel doesn't just mean preaching John 3.16. That's the core of it, but that's not the extent of it. It means preaching the entire testimony of salvation, which is Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. That's the gospel. It culminates in the manifestation, the revelation of Christ and his work on the cross, but that's not the full extent of the message. When Paul says, I preached or I preached the gospel or the counsel, the full counsel of God, what he's saying is, I gave you everything God has revealed, which today for us is the Bible. That was his mission. The word of God was the preaching Paul was committed to. And the effect in that cause and effect relationship was to bring a message of grace to all Asia and to travel endless distances in the process, of course, and endure all this hardship. Why? What was the cause that enabled that effect? In the first half of the verse, verse 24, Paul gives the cause which enabled him to have that kind of sustained ministry in Asia and elsewhere. He was able to run this course because he didn't consider his life of any account. You'll be interested to know what the Greek word is for account. It's logos, the word. Paul's using a play of speech here, a play of words here, when he says, account, speaking of himself. He's saying he didn't consider his own personal life to be of much testimony, of much account, of much word. So he therefore, the cause, the effect of that was, he was therefore able to devote himself to preaching the life, the word of Jesus as assigned to him by God, the the gospel account. He says, I cared nothing for my own account. I cared about the gospel account. That meant his own life was not the point and therefore it didn't cause him to hold back from the mission God gave him. He was able to preach effectively and consistently because he wasn't interested in his own life story or his own legacy or his own reputation, much less saving his own skin. On the contrary, he was concerned only with the glory of God, even when it meant facing death, potentially, trials, etc., persecution. And there's a corollary. The contrary is also true. The corollary is... If we are too concerned with our own life and our own reputations and our own legacies and the like and earthly rewards for those same things, we put at risk our willingness to preach the gospel, to deliver the ministry God has given us, whatever form it takes. They're literally in opposition. You can't serve two masters. And these are the two masters that dominate our experience in human life. To serve self, which is usually focused around financial gain, but not exclusively, or to serve God, which usually puts all those other things at risk. And Paul says, because I cared nothing of my own account, I was able to do this ministry. Paul now, I think, has laid this out as a principle for, for them, for us, for everyone, of course, but in particular for this group as he speaks to them, because he knows the kind of persecution they themselves will experience as they pick up the baton that Paul is now announcing that he's laying down for them. Paul says, Probably given divine insight at some point, Paul says, I'm not going to see you again. This is it. If you have uh, expected to have me alongside you indefinitely, and by that expectation you have assumed you were going to rest on me and rest on my strength and on my apostolic authority, uh, I need to let you know that's coming to an end. You now have to rest uh, on what God has given you and your own leadership roles and carry this forward without me. 
And he says, in light of that, he says, I have no regrets. There have been no obligations unmet as a result of my ministry. I am confident in all that I have proclaimed. I am confident that I have done the job God has given me to do. Shouldn't that be every teacher's goal? To anyone who has any role in developing or edifying the body of Christ, if we fail to deliver the full counsel of God's Word, we risk being guilty in some fashion for what comes from that. Paul says, I am innocent of the blood of all men in verse 26. Now, why would he say that? Why would he say, I'm innocent of the blood of all men? I mean, would anyone have accused Paul of killing people? I'm innocent of the blood of all men refers to, I am without conviction with respect to what I might have done to save men or what I might have done to instruct men or preserve them in their godliness before God. I will not be the cause, the blame for anyone who is not able to live up to God's expectations. For I have delivered them everything they need in the form of God's word. And therefore, the corollary is if we ever fail in that same respect, then maybe the implication is we will in some fashion share some measure of guilt over what comes from it. Not to say we're responsible for someone else's sin, but Paul's statement would seem to imply that there could have been some guilt for his sake if he hadn't followed through his mission. Finally, Paul moves from using his own testimony here as an example to giving a warning. And this is where he concludes and where we will conclude. Look at the instructions he gives to these leaders in verse 28. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all your flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one else's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who are with me. In everything, I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This is classic Pauline. First, Paul says, in light of the opposition that's coming, be on guard. Be on guard for those who are enemies of the gospel. And particularly for false teachers and for false teaching. And notice what he tells these guys, expect it. And then because you expect it, be on guard against it. It strikes me that perhaps this is the best explanation for how false teaching eventually does take hold in many churches. Leaders aren't guarding against it. Leaders are not necessarily expecting it. And if you don't expect it, you don't guard against it. If you don't guard against it, then you don't set up any kind of protections or standards or reviews or or anything of the sort. You uh, simply assume the best, and only, I, I guess, if something terrible happens, do you get involved to find out if the teaching is a problem. If you don't have protections, you are asking for false teachers to come in and do what they do because they're always looking for the opportunity. It also struck me as I studied this that for all the instructions Paul could have given leaders in the very last meeting he would ever have with these gentlemen, Paul chose to emphasize the importance of maintaining the purity of the church's teaching and nothing else. The one and perhaps only responsibility that distinguishes church leaders from the rest of the congregation is the unique responsibility to guard against false teaching. If you do a careful study, particularly in the uh, pastoral epistles of Titus and 1st, 2nd Timothy, 
Look to see what it is that distinguishes a leader from the rest of the church. There are character traits, but they are not traits that shouldn't be shared. They are the traits every Christian is supposed to have. But as a leader, these are the minimum qualifications. But when we think about the duties, though, of a leader, there's only one that distinguishes leaders from everyone else. There's only one duty given in Scripture, and it is to guard the teaching. Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep if you love me. That's it. That's the only job you have that's unique, that's separate from what the rest of the congregation is asked to do. Unfortunately, as I look around the church today, it seems to be the one thing that leaders don't do. They say they do. There's a difference, though, in agreeing with the principle and actually carrying it out. A lot of people agree with with the principle, but I don't find a lot of people who actually spend any real time inspecting the teaching. And I know this firsthand because I have the privilege to teach in a lot of different places. You'd be shocked to know how few places know anything about what I teach. That's not a good practice. That's indicative of what I find everywhere. It's hard work. It requires difficult conversations. It requires being nosy and asking pointed questions about what someone believes and what they teach. And, And we want to avoid those unpleasant moments. And it's too time consuming. Those are the things that I think I'm seeing a lot more now. And I think Paul's point to these gentlemen is that's the one thing you're supposed to do. Why is this the one exhortation that leaders have been given above anything else? Because as a leader, you're selecting and and for the most part determining the program of teaching that any church will experience. And the leaders are assumed to be doing what's right by their congregants. So you lead them into this poor teaching by definition when you allow it to come into the building. You're supposed to check on it. It's it's the core role of the leader. This role of, of guarding the teaching does not in any way reduce the responsibility for each individual member of the faith to be Berean, to to check in the scriptures to see if what they're taught is true. But we also know that to the degree of your maturity, you'll be successful or less successful at that. We have leaders for a reason. It must be so that they are able to edify and and like a shepherd with with a flock, lead them in the right way and help them grow properly because at the early stages, believers are not well equipped to do a lot of that for themselves, and though they should be called to grow to that point. If a leader is not guarding the teaching, then it's going to be only God's grace that that would result in that church growing in the right way because the enemy never stops prowling, as Scripture tells us, so his, his opportunities are endless if his desire is to bring bad teaching into a church that's not guarding. In general, I think that's the challenge, is the pastoral staff in every church should spend their time either teaching or visiting teaching on a continual basis, or else how do you guard? How do you know what's going on? Paul leaves them here with a commendation and a reminder. He says the word of God will edify them and lead them into an inheritance. And of course, what he's saying here is the rewards that they should expect for this kind of diligence won't be earthly. They'll be eternal. So for the sake of someone who says, well, I'm giving up too much, In the way Paul says, I sacrificed my own life's account for the sake of the gospel. Paul's saying, remember, we're working for a different inheritance anyway. Set your mind on things above. And then he reminds them that he himself lived that out. He did not come with selfish financial intentions. He didn't seek for his own gain. He even took care of himself and those who traveled with him. Again, setting this example for them to follow. And then I love the way he ends this. This is such salesmanship again on Paul's part. I I love the fact that it rounds out his personality. He wasn't afraid to to really pull people's heartstrings and get them to do the right thing any means he could. Look what he says at the end. He says they need to be charitable and willing to help believers in need. And remember, what's he doing? 
He's on a trip back to Jerusalem with a delegation of people giving money to the church. You've got to believe this is his fundraising moment. This is the moment when he passes the hat. He says, by the way, you notice I'm taking all this money from all these other churches. Don't let them out give you. But then he quotes Jesus. But what's fascinating about this is he quotes Jesus in a quote that doesn't exist anywhere in the Gospels. This doesn't exist anywhere. We don't have a record of this. So this must have been an unrecorded statement of Jesus that Paul knew, maybe Luke knew, and it just didn't make it into the Gospels. But it's recorded here as a statement of Christ. And then he leaves for Jerusalem and the elders are mourning his departure. Verse 36 through 38. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Dear Father, thank you, Lord, as as always, for the conviction that comes with a a clear and determined study of your word. Also, Father, though, with the encouragement to know that uh, when we listen and when we obey, we work within the power and the will of the Spirit, and so much can be accomplished in that way. Thank you, Father, as well, for uh, good teachers and for the leaders here who are watching over us and guarding the teaching. And we pray, Father, that they would be strengthened in that role. And, Father, we pray that we come back here in a couple weeks to continue in this study. In Jesus' name, amen.